Welcome back to Nurturing Financial Freedom. I am John J. Gay, along with Alex Cabot and Ed Lambert from Birch Run Financial Advisors down in Philadelphia. Welcome back, guys. Jag, it's always a pleasure to be here. Hey, Jag, thanks for having us. All right, so it is coming up on the end of the year. We are well into December at this point, and today we are going to talk about the five financial to-dos before year-end. These are things you want to take care of before December 31st. And Alex, let's start here. Have you maxed out those 401ks and retirement plans? What can you suggest we do here? Well, if you're asking me directly, Jag, yes, I have done so. But our advice, (laughs) of course, is for everybody else to do so. Of course, I have no excuse not to because I'm supposed to know what I'm doing, at least. Exactly. But that's number one, is is make sure that, if possible, you have maximized your retirement plan contributions for 2019. Generally, retirement plans have annual contribution limits, that is, total dollar amounts that you cannot go over mm-hmm. for the calendar year. So company plans like 401ks, 403bs, and, and most 457 plans, which are all kind of permutations of the same type of retirement plan, the annual contribution limit for 2019 is $19,000 or $25,000 if you are over 50. Got it. That extra 6000 is called a catch-up contribution. Uh, if you got a little behind the eight ball saving for retirement and want to catch up later in life, the IRS allows you to do that. I'm uh, trying to resist the dad joke of mustard and relish here. Continue. <laughs> and I don't even have kids and I'm still making dad jokes. Look at that. Hey, you got to get prepared, Jag. Yeah. So, uh, so four hundred one k's, four hundred three b's, four fifty sevens, nineteen grand or twenty five grand, depending on your age. Um, regular IRA accounts. If you don't have access to a company retirement plan, an individual retirement account has a maximum contribution of six thousand dollars or seven thousand dollars if you're over fifty. Again, uh, the catch up contribution. Got it. It's very simple to explain this. Generally speaking, the more you save, the better off you're going to be long term. Absolutely. So you make sure that you've absolutely maximized all the retirement savings you can. And there's an additional benefit to getting that money put aside and invested and hopefully growing for your future. If you're contributing to uh, traditional retirement accounts, that is non-Roth retirement accounts, every dollar you put into that plan or into that IRA is a dollar off of your gross income for tax purposes, assuming that you're eligible to take that deduction. So not only do you save the money, you also save some money in taxes. So that seems like a pretty good choice if you have that option. Because again, for those traditional non-Roth accounts, the money is taxed when it goes out, when it's supposed to coming in. So you're not going to be taxed on that money you set aside. Absolutely right. We've talked about so many times in previous episodes, Alex, the power of compound interest. And the more you can sock away now, when I say it will pay dividends, I mean that literally and figuratively down the road. Yeah, the earlier you start, the better off you are. And if if you're looking to save a lot of money before retirement, the later you start, it gets exponentially harder. You have to save a lot more money on a monthly basis to get to a certain target if you start at, say, 40 versus starting at 30. There's an expression I may have used on this podcast before. It's it's an old Chinese proverb. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, but the <laughs> second best time is now. So if you haven't started yet, now's the soonest you can possibly do it. So what are you waiting for? Was that Confucius or are we not sure? I'm not sure if that's attributed <laughs> to anybody. It might be an apocryphal quote. I don't know, but I've seen it listed as a Chinese proverb. And I love it because it makes sense and it fits this circumstance and, and many circumstances with financial planning very well. Absolutely. So you want to sock away as much as you can now. On the other end of the spectrum, once you hit a certain point, 
we got to talk about these required minimum distributions and what that means and what you have to do before the end of the year there. So, Ed, what can you tell me about those RMDs? Yeah, so uh, like you said, Jag, RMD stands for Required Minimum Distribution. And you have to take an RMD from your IRA or your qualified accounts each year once you reach age 70 and a half. Now, technically, your first RMD has to be done by the April after you turn 70 and a half, mm-hmm. but that could lead to two forced distributions in the same calendar year, which could create a real tax headache. So let's say, for example, I turn 70 and a half this year, right? I could do my first RMD the first few months of next year, but that would be my 2019 RMD. I would still have to do my 2020 RMD in the same calendar year. So so most people take their first RMD the year in which they turn 70 and a half. And the way that RMDs are calculated are that the IRS uses a calculation based on your age and your IRA value the previous December 31st to determine how much you have to take out each year. So you usually know by sometime in January what your RMD is going to be for the upcoming year, okay? Mm -hmm. And since the IRS uses an actuary table, uh, the factor makes it such that the percentage of your IRA that you have to take out each year gets larger and larger as you age, okay? So... You know, somebody who's 72 years old doesn't have to take out as large a percentage of their IRA as somebody who's 82 years old, okay? Makes sense. And, you know, make no mistake about it, the RMD requirements in place to generate tax revenue for the federal government. Ah. And, you know, when you take money out of IRAs, the federal government taxes you. And many states tax IRA distributions as well, so it it's in their interest also. Mm-hmm. Now, if you are still working, uh, you don't have to take an RMD from your current company plan if it's like a 401k, but you do have to take an RMD from previous 401ks, other IRAs, simple IRAs, etc. So it kind of seems unfair that if you're still working and you're 71 or 72, you have to take an RMD out of certain accounts. Mm-hmm. But it's important to look into it because some accounts are kind of protected from it if, you, if you're still employed. Got it. You also don't have to take an RMD from a Roth IRA, JAG. And the reason why is Roth distributions are not taxable. Because you paid the taxes on the way in as opposed to the way out. That's right. So since the government has nothing to gain by forcing you to take money out of a Roth, they don't force you to take money out of a Roth. Well, why should they care when they have nothing to gain? That's exactly right. And again, it goes back to my point from a couple minutes ago. I mean, the reason behind RMDs is, you know, you took a tax deduction and they want to tax you before you die because you put aside money and avoided paying taxes at that point. They want to get that back eventually, right? Was it Ben Franklin who said the two things in life are death and taxes and the government's not going to let you get to one without the other? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's also um, important to understand that you could have a bunch of different IRAs, Jag, but all the government cares about is that you satisfy how much you know you need to take out in aggregate. So for example, let's just say I had a, a $50,000 RMD this year and I had my money in five different IRAs. Mm-hmm. I could take 50000 out of one of the IRAs. I could do 10000 out of each of five. The government doesn't care. 
All they care about is that Ed Lambert takes his $50,000 out and pays taxes on it, okay? Okay. And also, it's very important for everybody to pay attention because a lot of times we combine into portfolios our, our spouse's accounts and all that too. Mm-hmm. Each spouse has to take an RMD from their own account. Okay. So let's say my RMD this year was $40,000. My wife was $20,000. I can't take 60000 out of mine and not take anything out of hers. Okay. If I had five different IRAs, I could meet my requirement out of one if I chose. But my wife is going to have to meet her own requirement as well. And you know the reason why it's so important to really pay attention to this stuff is since the deadline is 1231, there is a very steep penalty on missed RMDs. Ah. The penalty is actually 50% on the amount missed. Wow. So hopefully you're working with people who pay attention to this stuff for you when you're in your 70s and 80s. Like Alex and Ed, for example. Exactly. Thank you for the plug. And (laughs) that was a very good example, by the way, Jack. We are very qualified for that. Yes. But it's very, very important not to miss an RMD and to plan for these. I mean, a lot of people take out enough from their IRAs, particularly in their 70s, before RMDs get too large to satisfy the government requirement. But you certainly want to make sure that you don't miss it. Yeah, and again, that's an important point that you said, Ed, is you can mix and match from the accounts in your name, but you can't mix and match between spouses. You each have to take out what the government says you have to take out. That's such an important point. You don't want to mess that up. That's absolutely correct. All right, Alex, what about tax loss harvesting in taxable investment? Can you explain this idea to me? Sure. Uh, Tax loss harvesting is one of the few legal ways to avoid paying income tax, uh, if, uh, if you can believe it. So tax loss harvesting, just to define it, it's selling securities or stocks or bonds at a loss in order to offset a capital gain that you've realized in the same year. Let's say in in January of this year, you sold XYZ stock and and you have a gain that's that's locked in of $10,000 or whatever. If you have a stock that has a loss on it, but you haven't sold it yet, you can sell that stock right now at a loss and use that to offset the gain from the other profit you made on the other trade. So why do it? Uh, Why do it in the first place? Yeah. If you have realized capital gains in a portfolio. That is, you sold off stocks in a taxable account and you locked in profit. You are responsible for paying capital gains tax the following year on those profits. If you can sell a position at a loss in the same year as you sold a position with a gain, you can offset some of the taxable gain uh, or all of the taxable gain for the year, likely reducing the amount that you have to pay in taxes. So that's advantageous as well. Now, the problem comes in because sometimes people don't want to sell securities at a loss. Right. That's what I'm thinking as you're explaining this. Naturally, the first thing that people think of is, oh, well, I'll sell it, I'll lock in the loss, and then I'll buy it right back. (laughs) So I I won't miss any upside on that stock if it rebounds or or whatever the security is. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is it triggers something called a wash sale. Okay. And a wash sale happens when you sell a stock or any type of security at a loss and buy back the same or what the the SEC defines as a substantially identical security, so something that's going to move like exactly the same as that, Mm -hmm. within 30 days before or after the wash sale. 
So if you are going to sell a security to offset a capital gain, you have to keep it off your books for a minimum of 31 days. So on the 31st day, you should be able to rebuy it and it won't uh, won't create a, a wash sale. But that's one thing you have to be very careful about. Now, of course, the wash sale rule discourages people from selling a position simply to claim a tax benefit. And there's not really any way around it. You can't sell it in one account and buy it back in another account. Or you can't sell it in your account and buy it back in your wife's account or in your retirement account. Right. It doesn't work that way. If it's in the same household, it ends up uh, it ends up counting. There are a couple of strategies that you can use to minimize the impact of that. Uh, there are legal ways to do it. Uh, it goes a little beyond the scope of the podcast to discuss all the nuances of that. Sure. But I would encourage anybody... If you have questions about wash sales and locking in uh, tax losses and and, uh, tax loss harvesting, we're always happy to talk. Uh, Whether you're an existing client of ours or not, we're always happy to take the time to go over the options that you have. So feel free to reach out if you do have questions about it. We say this every episode, and I think it's important to mention here again, is everybody's situation is different and everybody's situation is unique. So we're talking about selling stock at a loss to offset taxes you really are going to have to run the numbers for your specific situation to see if it's the right move and makes sense from a tax perspective. So like you said, Alex, this is why you need to speak to a professional, again, like yourselves, that can really help understand this for your particular situation. Yeah, absolutely. It is different for everybody. And sometimes a a, a tax loss harvesting strategy makes perfect sense. Other times it doesn't for a particular type of client or type of account. Ed, I want to come back to you here because our next topic is something that rings so true for me right now. And I've mentioned in previous episodes that my wife is the financial brains of the operation here, and she has uh, beat me over the head to make sure that this part of the year works for us. And that is a holiday budget and end of the year budgeting issues. What advice can you give our listeners as we get into the holidays here the last couple weeks of the year? Every year, Jag, We all see and we all know a lot of people who break the bank at the holidays, buying presents for their families, uh, you know, for their kids, for their grandkids, for their spouses, friends, et cetera. And, you know, some of these people are spendthrifts. uh, Some of these people are quite frugal the rest of the year. But, you know, around the holidays, they just kind of go crazy with the spending. And it's okay to spend more money in December for the holidays uh, if you plan ahead of time how much you're going to spend And you kind of amortize it into your annual budget or your monthly budget, right? Right. So for example, let's say you spend $6,000 a year at the holidays. Well, you know what? If you do that every year, build it into your budget as a $6,000 a year expense or a $500 a month expense if you want to amortize it over 12 months. Don't fall into the trap of treating something like this that repeats itself each year as a one-off expense because it's not a one-off thing if it happens every year, right? You know, we see that sometimes with travel. Somebody, you know, okay, well. Yeah, all of a sudden you've got a a $6,000 expense that you haven't had January through November. It's a really good point, Ed. That's absolutely right. My main point here is if you do it every year, it's part of your expense structure. It's not a one-time event, right? And, you know, when it comes to purchasing things, If you buy presents using credit cards, which most of us do, only spend an amount on presents that you have enough cash to pay off at the end of the month. So true. In your checking accounts, in your savings accounts, et cetera. 
And if you don't, those items are going to end up costing a lot more because of, of finance charges. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are still paying for Christmas in the middle of the next year because they just bit off more than they could chew buying presents. And another thing, and we covered this in a previous podcast, Alex covered it really well, never make a purchase on a card that's already accruing interest on an existing balance. Amen. So if I have a a card with a $5,000 balance, I'm working to knock down, and I want to buy my wife a $500 Christmas present, if I buy her that $500 Christmas present on that particular card that's already accruing finance charges, that $500 is going to start accruing a new finance charge immediately, as soon as I make the purchase. So, you know, the $500 item is going to end up costing me a heck of a lot more than 500 bucks. I think that is an important point, Ed, because that is something that so many people either miss or don't understand about credit cards is you've got to pay that balance in full uh, from your statement every month because that's when the interest hits. And if you're already paying interest and then you buy a dollar pack of gum, you're paying interest on that gum from the minute you buy it. It's absolutely amazing that new purchases don't roll over to the next month at least, but that's the, that's the way it works. My wife has uh, beaten the fear into me to pay off that credit card every month, and the minute there's a diamond interest, there's going to be you-know-what-to-pay in my household. That's good. I've got a healthy fear of my wife. That's good. She's a smart lady. I mean, we see a lot of people come in with credit card balances, and oftentimes those interest rates are around 20% or so. It's just um, unbelievable how quickly interest accrues and how much more something actually costs you if you don't pay it off at the end of a month and you pay it off over time. When I was a radio DJ in Vermont, one of the best promotions that we did every year was every January, we called it the fantastic plastic credit card payoff. And we would pay off somebody's credit card up to you know $1,000 or $2,000 or whatever it was. And it was such a great promotion and people went nuts for it because every year, all of our listeners mm-hmm. overextended themselves on their credit mm-hmm. cards for the holidays. Yep. Absolutely. And you know what? In today's world with online shopping, it's a pretty dangerous thing. You know, online shopping is very convenient. And oftentimes it makes it almost too easy to overspend, Jag. Yes. You know, you go out to the mall, even with a credit card, you got to lug the stuff around. Mm -hmm. You got to go store to store, all that. I mean, I don't want to pick on Amazon because they're great. But you go into Amazon and you have everything right in your cart. You can find anything you want. You can shop very quickly and you can spend very quickly without being accountable for it. Absolutely. I'll say this. I live in Michigan. My best friend's kid, my goddaughter, she lives in New Hampshire. I have a new nephew. My brother and his wife just had a kid uh, in October and they're in Massachusetts. And rather than buying a gift and boxing it and shipping it and waiting in line at the post office or UPS or whatever it is, Amazon, gift wrap, put a note in it. Yep. Done. It is so easy and it's all on the screen. Like you said, it's a really interesting piece of psychology, Ed, because you're not carrying all those things. Boy, this is a lot of money that I spent that I'm carrying around. You're actually Mm -hmm. click, 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 done. And it's like, oh, I I don't even realize I spent the money. You can spend faster than you can think. You know, at least if you're lugging something around, you have to think about the cost of that item. (laughs) Um, When you're getting something, you know, to wrap at the store and, and driving out to get somebody a present, it's just possible you'll buy less total presents as well for each person. So the one thing we do recommend, 
is that you keep some sort of spreadsheet or list, especially if you're shopping online, because everybody has their computer right there and yeah. everybody has a, a spreadsheet program like Excel. And each item that you buy, put it on the spreadsheet mm. and you know, keep a track of how many presents you get for each person, how much you spend on each person. And what that ultimately does at the end, Jag, you sum that number up and you're holding yourself accountable yes. to the total amount that you're spending. You know, it takes a little bit of time, but that's very important. And, and you want to keep that tally going because if you set a goal, you know, before you get into the holiday shopping, you want to make sure you're relatively close to it. And you certainly want to make sure, you know, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, that you have the cash on hand to pay for these things so you're not paying for them uh, the following spring. And I'll take that a step further, Ed, because again, my wife working in corporate finance and again, being the brains of the financial operation, and I, I swear I'm not just kissing up to you right now, honey, but we took it a step further and we said, okay, each kid or each person we're buying a gift for, what do we want to spend? Okay, $50 on this, $25. Yep. Let's just not tell the kids that we spent more on some of them than others. But anyway, we had a number. And on Amazon, I said, okay, Christmas gifts for four-year-old girls for my goddaughter. And it was like, okay, Frozen 2, it's within my budget. Okay, click, done. But we actually planned out how much we were going to spend rather than yep. have it get out of control of, oh, I saw this and I bought this for her, but oh, she'd probably really like this too. And that's how it spirals out of control. Yep, it sure does. It sure does. And you know, like I said, online shopping is unbelievably convenient. But that convenience can lead to overspending very easily. You can always try my method for saving money at the holidays. I've tentatively called it the Ebenezer Scrooge route. <laughs> I had a feeling you were going there. Because <laughs> I just don't buy presents for anybody. And boy, does that save a lot of money. Nobody? I'm just kidding. Your wife and your kids, maybe? <laughs> there's, that's there's poor Cabot kids. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're wearing the same They're wearing like potato sacks, you know <laughs> Painting quite a visual Tiny Tim Cabot <laughs> We've always taken the approach that uh, you just mentioned, Jag That everybody gets a certain dollar budget and, uh, and we try to stick very close to that if possible and families can totally get out of control with that. So when I live here in Michigan where my wife's extended family is, and it used to be like a white elephant exchange and all that, and one year they finally said, okay, everybody started having kids, so you know what? Let's buy for the kids, and that's it. And that really uh, went a long way in terms of saving headaches and financial stress for people. Absolutely. All right, Alex, our last topic today is something that not a lot of people know about but can be really advantageous in the right situation, and you want to do this before the end of the year, and that is a Roth conversion. Can you walk us through that? Sure. So a Roth conversion is simply taking all or part of a traditional IRA and converting it into a Roth IRA. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the biggest advantage, uh, if you remember from previous podcasts or if you remember learning this at some point, a traditional IRA is a tax-deferred asset, which is taxed at distribution, and a Roth is a tax-free asset that is not taxed uh, at distribution. This allows you, a Roth conversion allows you to convert these tax-deferred assets into tax-free assets that aren't taxed when they're taken out. So a Roth conversion can allow an investor to take advantage of a current lower tax bracket versus an anticipated higher tax bracket later in life. Uh, you're effectively paying the taxes up front, hopefully at a lower rate than what you would be paying later on when you take the money out. Now, of course, there are disadvantages to a Roth conversion as well. 
Uh, when you do a Roth conversion, taxes are due for the tax year in which the conversion took place. So if you did one today, taxes would be due by April 15th of next year. Got it. Any amounts that you convert are taxed at the owner's ordinary income tax rate. So if you're already in the highest tax bracket, you're going to pay the same highest tax bracket rate for any money that you convert from a traditional to a Roth. Now, the other downside is if you convert any substantial amount from a traditional to a Roth, you might push yourself into a higher tax bracket. So if you're at the 22% bracket now, if you convert $50,000 from traditional to Roth, that's an additional $50,000 of income that might bump you up into the 24% bracket. So now you're actually paying more uh, nominally on that conversion than you would have in your ordinary income tax bracket. And of course, the final disadvantage to it, because you have to pay the tax the following year for the same tax year in which you do the conversion, if you don't have sufficient assets to pay the tax out of pocket, so money in a savings or checking account or an investment account that you can easily access, right? you'll actually need to distribute more from the traditional IRA to cover the tax expense, and you will increase the amount of tax you have to pay because the money you take out to pay taxes is also going to be taxed. Right. So, so there's a narrow band of incomes and ages where a Roth conversion is, financially speaking and empirically speaking, advantageous. This is a question we get all the time about whether we should do a Roth conversion or how much should we convert if we're going to do a Roth conversion. And the calculations that go into figuring out what the benefit is, uh, or even if there is a benefit period, are very nuanced and very complicated. So anytime you're thinking about a Roth conversion, before you commit to something, you should absolutely talk with financial and tax professionals uh, in order to determine if it makes sense, and if it makes sense, how much is appropriate to convert. So again, going back to that idea of always making sure you are talking to the right people because every decision uh, is very individualized when it comes to uh, to money, especially when taxes are involved. So to boil it all down, Alex, a traditional IRA, you're paying the taxes on the way out when you withdraw the money. A Roth, you're paying taxes on the way in. The conversion is kind of the middle ground where you pay it at the time of the conversion, but it's only going to make sense if your financial situation and your tax brackets say that this is the right time to do it. Yeah, I don't even know why I had to say it. You could have just said that and saved our listeners about four or five minutes. So, <laughs> But again, it is such a complicated thing. And I want to hit that last point that you made over again, which is that if you're going to do it, you ideally want to be in a situation where you can pay the taxes on it from somewhere else, as opposed to having to withdraw more for the taxes. That just complicates it even further. And again, you really want to talk to guys like Alex and Ed about a situation like this. It can be a real advantage for you but only if it's the right situation and you need a professional to tell you if it's going to be the right situation. And to reach professionals like the two of you, what are the best ways to get you at Birch Run Financial? Any information can be found on our website, www.birchrunfinancial.com. You can email our general email box at info at birchrunfinancial.com. Or you can always call us at the office if you believe in the old-fashioned way of uh, actually picking up the phone. It's 484 484- <laughs> Three nine five two one nine zero. There's never any cost for a conversation. We're always happy to talk. 
the three of us are all close in age. We're all in that zennial, uh, halfway between Gen X and millennial thing. So sometimes I like the phone and, and sometimes I don't. It's nice to have that flexibility. I, I spend a lot of my day on the phone. I know Ed does too. So we're, uh, we're, we're a little bit more old school than most, uh, most traditional uh, later Gen Xers, uh, early millennial people. Fair enough. Alex, Ed, great talking to you as always. Have a great holiday. We'll talk to you in the new year. Thank you so much, Jag. Have a wonderful holiday and happy new year. Looking forward to it, Jag. See you later. Any opinions are those of Ed Lambert and Alex Cabot and not necessarily those of RJFS or Raymond James. The information contained in this report does not purport to be a complete description of the securities, markets, or developments referred to in this material. There is no assurance any of the trends mentioned will continue or forecasts will occur. The information has been obtained from sources considered to be reliable, but Raymond James does not guarantee that the foregoing material is accurate or complete. Any information is not a complete summary or statement of all available data necessary for making an investment decision and does not constitute a recommendation. Investing involves risk and you may incur a profit or loss regardless of strategies selected. Every investor's situation is unique and you should consider your investment goals, risk tolerance, and time horizon before making any investment. Diversification and asset allocation do not ensure profit or protect against the loss. The examples throughout this material are for illustrative purposes only. Actual investor results will vary. Future performance cannot be guaranteed and investment yields will fluctuate with market conditions. Raymond James does not provide tax or legal services. Please discuss these matters with the appropriate professional. Holding stocks for the long term does not ensure a profitable outcome. Investing in stocks always involves risk, including the possibility of losing one's entire investment. Stock dividends are not guaranteed and must be authorized by the company's board of directors. Contributions to a traditional IRA may be tax-deductible depending on the taxpayer's income, tax filing status, and other factors. Withdrawal of pre-tax contributions and or earnings will be subject to ordinary income tax and, if taken prior to age 59 and a half, may be subject to a 10% federal tax penalty. Consult your tax advisor to assess your situation. Unless certain criteria are met, Roth IRA owners must be 59 and a half or older and have held the IRA for five years before tax-free withdrawals are permitted. Additionally, each converted amount may be subject to its own five-year holding period. Converting a traditional IRA into a Roth IRA has tax implications. Investors should consult a tax advisor before deciding to do a conversion. RMDs are generally subject to federal income tax and may be subject to state taxes. Securities offered through Raymond James Financial Services, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors, Inc. Bertrand Financial is not a registered broker-dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services. Bertrand Financial is located at 595 East Sweetsford Road, Suite 360, Wayne, Pennsylvania, 19087, and can be reached at 484-395-2190.